Our text for this morning is Psalm 89, and we will read verses 1 through 18. This is the Word of God. This is a masculine of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Selah. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong as your hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Will you pray with me? Father, I... um, I'm grateful that we are able to gather today and sing your praise and remember your faithfulness. And now, God, I would just ask you, I would plead with you in the name of Jesus for the glory of Jesus. Would you work in your word to bring honor to your name and to bring life and joy to your people? We pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You can be seated. All right, in order for our message this morning to be properly Christmassy, I need to begin with a quick question. We sang it twice today, by the way, so this should be easy. And so I'm going to ask, first of all, let's see if anybody under the age of, oh, I don't know, eight, any young people, maybe under the age of 10, can tell me, what are the three gifts that the wise men brought to the young Jesus? Does anybody know? Little ones? Gold, okay. Golden what? Frankincense and what was the other one? Myrrh. Myrrh. Very good. How many of you all are impressed? Yes, indeed, right? They were more impressed than I thought they would be, guys, just so you know. So now we sang it in uh, the Star of Wonder, but also in, in We Three Kings, and, and you've heard it from other theologians, that it's possible that those three gifts point to three truths about Jesus, even if the, the, the Magi didn't know that they were bringing them this way. Gold is a proper gift to bring a king. You guys would understand that pretty easily, right? Frankincense 
is a kind of incense that was used in offerings to God. See Leviticus chapter two, verse two for that. So if gold is a king gift, incense could well be thought of as a God gift. And myrrh had many uses. It was a perfume. It was a, a sweet-smelling perfume. But one of the uses of myrrh in the Bible is to prepare a body for burial. See John chapter 19, verse 39 for that. And we know, dear friends, don't we, that the Lord Jesus is God with us. What gift do we give to God with us? The incense, the king of kings, gold, and the one who died to rescue the children of God, myrrh. So, I don't know. Did those three gifts foreshadow the work of the Lord Jesus? Maybe they did. Maybe they did. Well, this morning, we're gonna begin our Advent series in a place that is not your typical Christmas passage. How many of you thought, oh, it's Christmas time, Psalm 89, here we go. But this is a passage, this psalm altogether, like the, like the three gifts of the wise men, it points to the same three attributes of the Messiah. It points to God and to King and to Deliverer. And so we're gonna begin what I hope is gonna be a three-sermon look at Psalm 89 this morning. The psalm is a masculine, that means it's a teaching song, and it was, and we don't know when it was written. It could have been written in the 900s BC, that's probably when Ethan lived. It could have been written in the 700s or even the 400s BC if we're saying that it's a psalm in the style of Ethan. We just don't know for sure. We, but what we do know is this. This psalm was written after God had made his covenant with David to establish one of his offspring as the king who would be king forever. But it's a psalm that was written during a time when the people of Israel knew that the promises of God as yet were lying unfulfilled. This was written in a time when the people longed desperately to be rescued by God. It was written in a time of darkness that longed for the light of the hope of the coming of the Savior. Psalm 89 breaks down this way, verses 1 through 18 bring, or they give praise to God and his faithfulness. Verses 19 to 37 point us to the promise of the king to come. Verses 38 to 52 cry out to God to deliver his people. In the days of the Old Testament, people longed for God to bring to earth the Messiah that he had promised. Today, even as you and I are in that middle of this Christmassy season, we remember the promise of God and we remember that God fulfilled that promise and even in that, you know what we do just as Harold read to us in, 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 from the Advent reading and prayed, we long not only to remember and rejoice in that first coming of Jesus, but do we not long for his second coming when he finishes everything and sets everything right? Won't that be beautiful? So our text for today we're going to see in the psalm, focus us on the faithful God. Then over the next two weeks, Lord willing, we're going to focus on the promised king and the self-sacrificing deliverer. And that's how Psalm 89 will be Christmassy. So how many of you are note takers again? So I know who I've got that takes notes. Three or four of you. Amen. I love it. I'm judging the rest of you. Uh, we're going to find seven <gasps> quick Quick points 
in a message we're calling God with us. And so let's get ready to have a lot of fun to rejoice and get to know our God, okay? Point number one, sing and learn of God's glory and God's faithfulness. Sing and learn of God's glory and God's faithfulness. Verses one through four. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. By the way, how hard is that not to sing the old song when you hear that? Maybe I'm the only one. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever in the heavens. You will establish your faithfulness. You've said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Selah. Why, why do Christians sing? They're really, I'll give you two good answers. You know what one reason is we sing? We sing to worship God. Right? We honor God in, a, in an act of religious obedience. God commanded it. It pleases God. So we do it. Amen? True? We sing because we're obeying and worshiping God. That's true. But there's another reason that Christians often miss as to why we sing. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 reads, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We sing to teach. We teach one another truth as we sing songs full of truth. This is why it's good that you hear each other when you sing. Well, in our text, the psalmist says he's going to sing of God's steadfast love and his faithfulness. He's going to sing lyrics that teach of the, the hesed, the covenant-making, promise-keeping, never-ending love of God. Now, why would you put that at the beginning? Why would we sing of the, the steadfast love of God at the beginning of the psalm? If you don't remember that God's promising love lasts forever, if you forget that God is always faithful and always true to his promises, you won't be able to handle the dark times that are talked about later in this psalm. You give up and you'll lose hope when it looks like the promises of God are too far away to be, to, to be fulfilled. Well, in verse 2, we see God has established his faithfulness in the heavens. The angels know God is faithful. The sun, the moon, the stars, they are testimonies to God's power. They are testimonies to God's consistency. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19.1 says. And part of the declaration of God is the constant reminder in the skies that God is in control. He never fails and he always does everything he says he'll do. Then in verses three and four, the psalmist tells us of one, just one promise that God has made. The Lord made a covenant with David. And as God is faithful to his word, he will. He absolutely must keep his promise that he made to David too. Second Samuel 7, 16 reads, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established 
forever. God promised David that one of David's sons would build the temple. That happened, right? Solomon did it. But God also promised in the same passage, somebody from David's line, somebody from David's house, is going to be established as king forever. A never-ending kingdom is going to come out of David's family line. A king is going to come who will be the king over all. And that is the promise that the Messiah, that the Christ, will come from David's family line and reign forever. So Christians... This is a great season for you and me to sing and to learn of the glory of God and the faithfulness of God. We need to be people who are singing truth. We need to be people who sing of the fact that God is always true to his word. We need to sing and make the Lord known to others. We need to sing of the kingdom of God and the grace of a God who saves sinners like you and me. We need to sing that God fulfilled his promise when he sent Jesus to be our Savior. And we need to sing that God's promises are still true today. Now, what are some of the kinds of things we sing about? We're going to see that in, our coming, in the points that come up. So point number two, God is over the heavens and the angels. Point number two, God is over the heavens and the angels. Verse 5 through 8. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? So the call to let the heavens praise the Lord, that's a call for the angelic beings, perfect spiritual creatures, servants of God, to declare the greatness of God. In the assembly of the holy ones, we know God is understood to be the most holy, the one who is holy, holy, holy. Verse six then asks the question, who's like the Lord? Even in the heavenlies. What's the point of that question? It's to show us that indeed there is nothing, there is no one in creation who can come close to matching the God who made us. The highest angel, a being whose very power and holiness would terrify you and me, that kind of being is nothing in comparison to the greatness of the Lord. God is infinitely greater than even the greatest creation. God is greatly to be feared. Even in the heavenly council, if all the heavenly beings were gathered, if all the angels got together to have a conference, the greatest one among them, even the assembled totality of the greatest of the great, would tremble in holy fear of the magnificence of the Lord. The seraphim use wings to cover their faces as they serve, as they serve in the presence of God because God's very holiness, God's greatness is too much for them to bear without a covering. No creature, 
Not man, not angel can even come close to matching the holiness of God. And thus the psalmist asks the question, who is mighty as you are? God, the psalmist knows that nothing in all creation is mighty like God. Nothing can match God's perfection. Nothing can match God's strength. Nothing can match God's glory. And surrounding God, surrounding his perfection, surrounding his holiness, his might is the faithfulness of the Lord. He clothes himself with faithfulness like a garment. He wraps himself up in perfect faithfulness. God is faithful to himself. God is faithful to his word. God is faithful to his holiness. God is never not God. God is never not perfect. God is never not absolutely awesome in every particular. So when you and I think of the Lord, and when you and I sing of the Lord in this season, we should remember that the one we're singing about is the Holy One, God is above all beings in the universe. Every created thing is an infinite degree lower than the holy God. All mankind, every angel, every animal, all are endlessly lower than the God who created. And as we sing of the Lord in this season, we declare him to be what he is. We declare God to be mighty. We declare him to be awesome. We declare him to be faithful, a perfect, promise-making, promise-keeping God. I feel like I should stop and breathe. I don't know if I have time. Third point. God is over the seas and land. God is over the seas and land. 9 through 12. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You know, sometimes when we think about God as superior to the angels, we think of God as ruling in the heavens, sometimes that concept is, feels far away because y'all haven't seen angels, right? We, we, we know the heavens are vast. We know that angels are wonderful, but we really don't identify there. So the psalmist moves the discussion of the Lord and his greatness a little closer to home. In verses 9 and 10, we see that God is the ruler over the seas. You know, to the Israelite, the concept of the sea was a terrifying thing. Most of the people around Israel believed that Baal, the storm god, was the god over the seas. If you wanted there, you were going to mess with him. So for the psalmist to declare that God, the Lord Yahweh, subdues the oceans, that's where the songwriter to say that God is greater than every false God that's out there. God is mightier than the deities of the nations. Verse 9, God has the power to calm a raging sea. Verse 10, God is mightier than the greatest imaginable sea monster. 
Rahab there is a name used in Scripture for a sea monster. We see Leviathan kind of makes us think that way too, right? In, in Job 26, verse 12, the word Rahab is used and is, as it talks about God calming the sea and crushing a sea monster. Isn't that cool, by the way? Isn't it cool that you guys... In the, I don't even know if there is a sea monster that's Rahab. It doesn't matter. What, you imagine the biggest, nastiest, spiniest, thorniest, slimiest sea monster you can come up with? God can squish it. That's good. Now... To the Israelite, God controlling the sea, crushing a monster in the sea, that would bring something to their minds, maybe. Maybe, maybe. Think about the Exodus. There was a sea involved, wasn't there? God led his people out of a foreign land. He divided a sea. He subdued a sea like nobody's ever subdued a sea. They walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground, and then Pharaoh's army, the biggest monster they could ever think of, walked right on in the middle, and God used the crashing walls of water to crush the, the armies of Pharaoh. God demonstrated his power to his people. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's the reference of God scattering his enemies with his arm at the end of verse 10. Then verse 11, the psalmist declares that both the heavens and the earth belong to God. Well, why do they belong to God? That's a good question, right? Well, God founded them. God created them. God made them by his power. He didn't borrow stuff from anybody. And thus God has the full right of ownership over all of them. God is not limited to any realm. The false gods made up in the minds of the Canaanites were limited, right? You, you, this God has to stay in the mountains. This God has to stay over the sea. This God has to stay in the plains. This God has to stay in these boundaries. Not the real God. God is over all of creation because every part of creation has belonged to God from the very beginning. Then in verse 12, the psalmist references Tabor and Hermon. Two mountains, those are mountains at the northern and the southern borders of the land of Israel. And the point there is to say that God owns the land from top to bottom, from north to south, and everything in between. And we're not saying here that there's some sort of limit to God's ownership. He's not bound by the land of Israel. The, the mountains don't mark his territory out where he can't go any further. The point here is that no border, no natural border, no man-made border, nothing has power to bind the Lord. He is over heaven. He is over earth. He is over sea. God is the Lord over everything that is. And so when we sing and teach others about our God, we've got to remind them that the Lord we sing of, the God we're singing about, he is not one option among many. God is not a choice on the buffet of life. There is one God. There is only one God who made us. And there's only one God who made everything that is around us. There is only one God who, who owns you because he made you. And it is your responsibility to respond to and worship that holy God. Fourth point. You still with me? Okay. Fourth, God is perfect and powerful. Verses 13 to 14. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. 
Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. So verse 13, the mighty arm, the hand of of God. The psalmist is praising God for his power. That's no surprise, right? How powerful is God? If he can make the universe, what can't he do? If God can hang the planets and the stars in the sky, nobody can come close to that. When's the last time you made a planet? God is above the angels. God is above the heavens. God is above the sea. God is above the land. Obviously, the power of God is unmatched. God is the almighty. And as the right hand of God is high, God's authority is unmatched. There is no person in creation who is as strong as God, and there is no part of creation that has authority over God. God is the ultimate. God is the Lord over everything, and there is nothing that has the right to say to God, you can't do that. But if God is almighty, and if God wields all authority and nothing can check him. Is that good news? If he lacked in character, that would be terrible news, wouldn't it? How horrible would it be to be under the thumb of an immoral ruler who has all the authority to tell you what to do and all the power to enforce every whim? But this is why verse 14 is so Glorious. Four things mark out God and God's kingdom. Righteousness, justice, steadfast love, and faithfulness. How do you feel about those things? God is righteous. God always is exactly, perfectly moral. God's actions are always totally, completely right. All that God does is by definition the very standard for what is right. Thus we need never fear that God will get caught up in doing wrong. God is also just. His kingdom is marked by justice. God is upright. He is straight, never crooked, never sneaky. God is even-handed. He's never wronging somebody by shortchanging them. That's not our God. At the end of all things, God will see to it that all matters are completely, perfectly, rightly settled. God appropriately judges all of his creation. He never, ever mistreats anybody. He never judges in such a way that somebody could say, you didn't handle that case right. And part of God being just is the truth that God will always rightly punish every single sin. You know that, right? That there is no person who will sin against God and not have that sin accounted for. No person in all of eternity will ever be able to say anything of the Lord other than that God handled everything exactly, rightly. That God treated all people in a perfectly fitting way that God properly punished every crime ever committed and that God properly shaped all of history to his glory. And then the steadfast love of God. Have we heard that word before today? Verse one, right? The chesed, 
We mentioned it in the first part of the psalm. How many of you parents, especially, have the Jesus Storybook Bible, Sally Lloyd-Jones thing? A couple of you? Yeah. This is, the word hesed, Sally Lloyd-Jones, when she, uses, she talks about that word in, in that, she calls it God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. It's pretty good, actually. It's a committed love of God that always works to bring God glory and do us good regardless of the cost. And that love is a defining characteristic of the Lord God all through the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. And God is faithful. God is always exactly what God is. God is always just. God is always righteous. God is always loving to his children in a never-ending way. God is always consistently, perfectly God. He is infinite in his strength. He is unchanging in his perfection. And he is absolutely worthy of all of our songs and all of our praise. Fifth point. Worshiping the Lord brings blessing. Number five, worshiping the Lord brings blessing. Verses 15 and 16. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. So now the psalmist gives us a beatitude, a pronouncement of blessing, you know, just like Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those, right? Y'all want blessing. Blessing is spiritual life and goodness. This is something you want. Cursing is the opposite of blessing. It's what you get if you don't get blessing. You don't want that. So who is blessed? That's a good question, right? Blessed is the one who knows the festal shout. How many of you this morning, that's what you just woke up thinking, you know what, I just think blessed is the one who knows the festal shout. I think Eric Yeager has it on a t-shirt. <laughs> he needs one. Blessed is the one who knows the festal shout, right? What is that? That is a stuffy way of saying that the person is blessed who knows how to joyfully praise the Lord. Celebratively, like a party, praising God. It's a poetic way to say that the one who sings the praise of God, especially the one who learns to praise God with actual joy, that person receives from God great blessing. But it's not just singing. Walking with God in the light of his face brings blessing. We're blessed when we don't just praise God with our lips, but with our lives. We're blessed when what we do is in the light of God's face. We are blessed when we live in such a way that God can smile at what we do. And that means we're blessed when we live in submission to the will of God and the word of God. Then verse 16 says, there is, well, there's exulting and exalting. Those words sound alike, but they're different words. A person is blessed who exults in God. That means to rejoice in God. If you exult, you found extreme happiness or, or celebration in the character and the person of the Lord. When you exult in something, it's like you're rolling around in its goodness. You know what I mean? Some people exult in, in other things, right? I mean, you can exult in uh, cheesecake, Christmas candies, right? If you love it, you're like, oh, this is the best thing ever. 
That's exulting in something. I just love it. I'm so happy. But blessed is the one who exults in the character of God. Listen, it is good if you like the Lord you serve. You've got to learn to do that. Now, exalted, on the other hand, is a word that means that you are lifted up. So what do we see in verse 16? Who is blessed? The one who rejoices over God, the one who lives according to God's word, that person is blessed. And the one who exalts in, who, who celebrates God, that one is blessed. And the blessed one is in turn exalted, lifted up by God. God lifts up the one who loves him and lives for him and blesses them in his righteousness. That's what the last part of verse 16 tells us. The man or woman is blessed, lifted up in the righteousness of God. What's the point? There is great blessing. There is great joy. There is great reward in you loving and living for the Lord who made you. He is mighty. He is good. And he rewards those who come to him in faith. Point number six. We may make it. Point number six. God is our mighty king. God is our mighty king. 17 and 18 says, For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted, for our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Here's the psalm. We're actually at a transition point here. It's about to shift in focus from the praise of God to the promised King coming to earth from God. And here we see again, there is great strength and authority in God. No matter what kings come, God is the mighty King. Look at the four lines in verse 17 and 18 real fast. God is the glory of his people's strength. God's our glory. God's the source of any strength we've got. We have no glory, no power apart from the Lord. It's by the favor of God that our horn is exalted. The, the, the horn in, in Israel was a symbol of power. That, that would be a, a representative of the king. So it's like he, he, the king is lifted up, shown to be strong because of the favor of God. Without the favor of God, political power crumbles and is useless. Our shield belongs to the Lord. The only protection we've got as a people comes from the protecting, preserving power of the Lord. By the way, this kind of reminds us where in the New Testament, Paul tells us to pray for our leaders. Why does he do that? He doesn't say, pray so that your nation will conquer. God says to us Christians, pray for your leaders so that we can live a simple, quiet life, a life protected from outside attack. And then the king of the people, it says in the last line of 18, belongs to the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. There is no authority on earth. There is no authority in heaven that is not first and foremost God's authority. Indeed, the old King James Bible says to us at the end of the model prayer, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So Christians, our God is a mighty king. He has the authority. He has the power. He rules the world. Even when you can't see that God is ruling, God is ruling and God is good. God is faithful. God will be victorious. God is just and God is full of steadfast love again okay you're still with me right it is glorious to see this stuff about god isn't it 
We're supposed to sing God's praises. We're supposed to teach each other God's goodness. God is wonderful. God is awesome. God is over the heavens, and he's over the angels, and he's over the seas, and he's over the land, and God is perfect, and God is powerful, and worshiping this God brings blessing, and God is our mighty king. That's all true, right? You with me? That's enough to give us reason to rejoice. Can I give you one more thing to remember? Just one more? Number seven, point seven. Jesus is God with us. Matthew 1, 20 through 23 reads, But as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Friends, it is wonderful to know that a God like the God we just heard of in the first 18 verses of Psalm 89 exists. We love that. But as you and I look around and we think of the fallen world, the hopelessness of humanity, all that that middle verse of I heard the bells on Christmas Day, right? There is no peace on earth. There's something else we need. As we look at our own lives, we see that we have messed things up too much to impress God. Is that not true of you? How many of you would just honestly admit you're pretty much messed up most of the time? Amen. Three, four of you are. A lot of y'all are apparently pretty good. We cannot work our way to God. We cannot be good enough to please an infinitely holy God. How far short of infinitely infinitely good do you fall? Infinitely short. We are hopeless and helpless on our own because you can't climb to God. So listen, if God wants us, he has to come down and get us. And God did it. God came into the world. God sent his son. And the word of God tells us that Jesus, the son of God, is Emmanuel, God with us. We learned earlier, God is greater than all the heavenly beings, right? God is greater than the angels. Remember that? Over the heavens? Hebrews 1, which Russ read for us this morning, you know what it tells us? Jesus is greater than every single angel that ever was. And it ain't close. We saw that the God of the universe is able to calm the seas. That's a God thing to be able to calm the seas. You know, the Lord Jesus stilled a raging sea with a word in Matthew, 20, in Matthew 8, 23 to 27, right? We saw that God is mighty. How mighty is Jesus? In John's gospel alone, Jesus turns water to wine, heals a man's servant from miles away, heals a man that was paralyzed for nearly four decades, feeds a crowd of thousands with just one guy's lunchbox, he walked on water, he gives sight to the blind, and Jesus brought a man back from the dead. 
That's, that's 11 chapters of John. And we also know from other gospels, Jesus drove out demons. Jesus taught the word of God with an authority never before seen. And Jesus himself, after dying, rose from the grave. Is that mighty enough for you? John also tells us, by the way, how glorious is Jesus. He, he's deity come to earth. In John 1, verses 1 and 2, we see, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then verse 14 says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Bible tells us that God, God's triune, God's three in one. There's only one God. That one God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. And Jesus is God the Son. And Jesus is the Word of God. And Jesus made every single thing that exists. And Jesus is infinitely above every other being that exists. And Jesus took upon himself flesh and he dwelt among us. And you know, friends, what makes this season, if you like this season, if you can celebrate this season, you know what makes this season so glorious? You know what I love about it? It reminds me to celebrate the simple, gloriously stunning truth that God came to earth. Jesus, God, the word made flesh, came to earth to live a perfect life and then to die to pay for my sins. And and God, my king, he came down to rescue me. Do you know that, Jesus? He's God. He was really human when he came to earth, that's true, but he is God and man. And the Jesus we sing about, he's the God that Psalm 89 talked about. He's the God over the angels, over the heavens, over the sea, over the land, over all things. Jesus is perfect and righteous, a holy, just judge. There is blessing in following Jesus. Do you? Do you follow this Jesus? He commands us all to turn from sinfully ruling our own lives. He commands us to turn to him and surrender to him as our Lord. Jesus commands us to believe that he's the son of God who died for our sins and who rose from the grave. He commands you to bow to him and find mercy in him and be forgiven because of him. And if you know Jesus, if you do know Jesus, Go back to the beginning of what we talked about today. Sing about him. Teach others about him. Live before his face, under his smile. Obey his word. Live in front of his face. Turn from self. Find life and joy in Jesus. Learn the festal shout. Learn to sing with real joy. Even if you don't like singing, learn to find joy in it anyway because it's good magnify the God who came to earth to rescue you. The wise men brought frankincense to the child Jesus. And that is an appropriate gift to give God in the flesh. So as we look forward to Christmas, let's remember, this is not a holiday about cute babies and mangers. This is a day to recall that the God we saw so exalted in Psalm 89, that God has come to this very earth, taken on skin and bone just like yours, and he did the work needed to save our very souls. Christmas 
is about God with us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are holy, you are pure, you are right in every way. You are worthy of worship. You are God with us. You are Emmanuel. Help us, Lord Jesus, to acknowledge you rightly and love you deeply. Forgive us our sins. Draw us near and help us worship you in this time. Be magnified. Do your work to be king in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.